Well, thank you, Matthew and Olivia. Matthew and Olivia are still kind of newlyweds. I think they're coming up to their second anniversary of marriage together. So thanks for reading scripture for us this morning. You know, one of the hardest things to do in life is to place second. As you're getting to know your pastor a little bit better, and you're maybe realizing that I have this competitive streak in me. I like to win. I have this crazy philosophy that winning is better than losing. I don't know where I got it from. Winning is more fun than losing. Funny thing. But you know, when I was growing up, it, it seemed to me often like that wasn't my destiny. I was a Canucks fan, so I guess that's part of it. But it seemed like second place was my destiny. I had this older brother, and my older brother was really good at pretty much everything that he tried. And, and I always felt like I was coming in second place behind him, or so it seemed to me. I loved track and field, and I was pretty good at the jumping events, long jump and triple jump, and at the regionals, I placed second in long jump to my friend Walter. I beat him all season in long jump, and he saved his very best jump for the regionals. It was very frustrating. And I also came in second in triple jump in the regionals to a guy from Williams Lake named Clint, and he outjumped me in triple jump by about a meter and a half, but... Uh, it turned out that he won the provincial, so I didn't feel quite so bad about that. But even 30 years later, looking back, it's, it's difficult to think about second place. It's hard to place second. Did you know that psychologists actually did a study of Olympic athletes in the 90s, and they discovered that it's actually more disappointing to win a silver medal than it is to win a bronze medal? Isn't that strange? Athletes actually prefer and are happier when they win a bronze medal than when they win a silver medal. It seems like the silver medal people are always kind of comparing themselves upward to the person who won gold. And they're thinking to themselves, man, if I just tried harder, if I had just done a little better, if I just shaved a second off my time, if I just landed a little more cleanly, I could have won gold. Whereas the guys in bronze, I mean, they're looking at everyone behind them and they're going, hey man, at least I'm on the podium, right? Bronze is a happier place than silver. It's kind of an intriguing study. Second place often means first loser. Third place means last winner. It's hard to place second. In fact, this picture pretty much says it all. It became a viral meme in about 2012. Michaela is not impressed. It's a photograph of American gymnast Michaela Maroney. She's quite an attractive and athletic young lady, but doesn't look that great in this picture, winning a silver medal for the vault in London in 2012. Heavily favored to win the gold, but she slipped on her final vault and placed second. Michaela is not impressed. It's hard to place second. Everyone is scrambling for the top in our society. We all want to be influencers, YouTube influencers. We like to win. We all want to have more views on our social media posts. Facebook sends us your most liked picture from last year. More likes on our page, more traffic on our website, more people paying attention to us. We want our kids to be 
top of the honor roll. Hey, that's my kid, 152nd out of 154 students. <laughs> no, no. Or, or maybe we want our kids to be the most outstanding athlete, right? We want them to be holding their hands triumphantly as they break the ribbon and win first place. We don't want the kid who's struggling over the finish line in last place in the dark long after everyone else has gone home. Way to go, Billy. You just ran the mile in like a day. Woo! <laughs> so proud of you, son. We want to own the best farm equipment, whether you think it's the green tractors or the red tractors, I don't know. We want the best vehicles. Fords are way better than Chevys. I said it, let the debate begin. We want the best cows. Angus are better than Charolais or something. I don't know very much about cows, but there's all of this wanting the best. And there's been a lot of shouting in our world lately. Shouting and rioting and looting and screaming. The divide between left and right, between conservative and progressive. It, it, just, it just seems like that gap is getting bigger and bigger, wider and wider, and nobody wants to bridge it. Everybody is just gathering in their own little echo chambers and screaming as loud as they can. We all want to yell, shout louder than the other side so that our voice gets heard. Nobody wants to come in second. I remember once my father said something really profound. And it took me about a decade, or maybe it took me four decades to realize it. He says, in an argument... The person who is wrong is usually shouting the loudest. Now, my dad knew what he's talking about because he could shout pretty loud. But it was just profound. I didn't, I didn't want to hear that at the time. I mean, I was a 17-year-old punk. I wanted to win. I wanted to be right. I wanted to be the one who was looked upon as being correct. I thought that if I shouted the loudest, that, that if, I, if I was just the most voluminous one out there, that I would be the winner. And you know, our society still has not figured that out. Have you? It's hard to be second place, right? Would you rather be first violin or second violin in the symphony? First violin gets more interesting music and gets paid more, right? Would you rather be Miss America, here she comes, Miss America, or the first runner-up? That's an interesting term, isn't it? First runner up. They don't even want to say second place. Here, first runner up. Would you want to be Peter O'Toole, who's been nominated for eight Academy Awards and never won once? Or would you rather be Tom Hanks, who's won two Oscars? I mean, seriously. Do you want to be employee of the month with your picture on the wall and all the accolades? Or do you want to be the second best employee with no picture and no bonus? When I graduated from seminary, the dean told me that I had a GPA, I had the second highest GPA out of my graduating class. I was like .01 away from being valedictorian in my seminary graduating class. That was kind of tough. Same thing in high school, too. When I graduated from high school, I came in second place to becoming the valedictorian. One other person beat me out, Andrea Costa. Now, she was very beautiful, and she was also my grad escort. So I don't really consider that one to be a total loss. That didn't feel exactly like second place. But second place. Why am I talking about second place in a sermon series on marriage? Well, it's because that 
competitive spirit, that I must win at all costs and I will run over you if I have to, I will do whatever it takes to win, that attitude does not work in relationships. It's poison to a relationship. Nothing destroys a marriage faster than someone trying to win. And if you have two people who are each trying to outdo the other, each one trying to shout louder than the other, each one trying to make the other one lose so that they can win, well, that is just a sad, sad thing. And our text for this morning, 1 Corinthians 13, Matthew and Olivia read it. And we looked at it last week, right? And we, we realized that love is something that you do. It's action words, it's verbs, it's, it's a demonstration. And we challenge each other to practice kindness and patience with each other. And for some of you, that was a strange week, wasn't it? Maybe your spouse could guess which one of those you chose. I mean, I made a joke with Elaine about halfway through the week, something that seemed funny to me at the time, but maybe it wasn't quite as brilliant as I thought it was. And she looks at me and she goes, well, I guess you chose patience because that was not kind. Ouch. Love is patient and love is kind. And it was all I could do to even pick one of them last week. And this week, I just wanted to give you one thought then. And it's this, verse 5, love does not demand its own way. Love does not demand its own way. Love does not insist on being first place. Love does not require you to win. In fact, sometimes love means that you choose to lose. You choose to give up your rights. You choose to let the other person have the preeminence. You choose to let the other person have the spotlight while you are content to simply applaud them in the dark. Love doesn't demand its own way. So, it's three in the morning and one of the babies starts crying and you know what winning looks like in that situation, don't you? Winning means you get to go to sleep while the other person gets up with the babies. So I roll over and I kind of nudge Elaine because she's not awake yet and I can hear the baby and I'm awake. So I nudge her a little bit and she doesn't really respond. So I kind of grumble at her a little bit. The baby, the baby, right? And, and if that doesn't work, then you know what the next move is, right? You grab the covers and you kind of roll over. And you take all the covers so that she has to get out of bed. And eventually she rolls out of bed and she goes to feed the baby and I roll over back in bed and I've won. Or have I? Have we lost? Love doesn't demand its own way. I suck at this, by the way. Just so you know, I wish I could stand up here in front of you and say, I am the paragon of virtue when it comes to this idea. I am the one that you should all follow. Every day you should choose to be like me. You should choose to be a servant. I make Elaine first place all the time. I am content to play second fiddle. But, but no, all too often in my marriage, I find myself demanding my own way. Love doesn't demand its own way. Like, yesterday was a struggle in my marriage. We had a fight over the television. Not really a fight. 
But here's how it went. I like to listen to music on my Saturday. I like to just turn the TV on and listen to Spotify in the background. Whereas Elaine, she likes to have a little bit of voices, people talking. She likes HGTV and some of those home renovation shows. And you know, part of you goes, well, it's better for her to watch home renovations than to actually pay for them yourselves. But you know, when they start watching HGTV, then you find that she, she wants to make all these changes to your home, right? So it's dangerous, right? So I'm watching Spotify and she grabs the remote control and I do you know what I what I do because you do it as well I know you do this you give the martyr sigh <sighs> right the martyr sigh I am I am the one who has to be laced with sarcasm dripping with self-deprecation okay if you really want to change the channel, I, I guess you can. I guess I'll be the bigger person. Underlying message, I, I always give you what you want. And, and of course, the martyr's side works, right? And she knows what I'm saying. And she puts the remote down and she silently endures David Arkin's tone. I've won. Or have I? Have we just lost? Love doesn't demand its own way. Like I said, I am not as good at this as I need to be. Do you need to have the last word whenever you argue? <laughs> Love doesn't demand its own way. We used to play games with other couples, Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride, you know. And I, I didn't feel like I had to win the game. I just had to beat Elaine. I didn't care if the other couple, one of them won. That didn't matter as long as I did better than Elaine. I wanted to beat her to, to win. Love doesn't demand its own way. Don't judge me. You're all the same. I know you are. I know you struggle with this in your own marriage. And so I ask you, is your insistence on winning over your spouse is it slowly poisoning your marriage? You see, in a marriage, when only one person wins, both lose. In a marriage, when only one person wins, both lose. Love doesn't demand its own way. You think that's a unique scripture? You think this is the only place that it's found? Think again. Try these on for size. Philippians 2 verse 3. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. In your marriage, think of your spouse as better than yourself. Galatians 5, 36. Let us not become conceited. Woohoo, look at me winning. Or irritate one another or be jealous of one another. Jealousy is simply the anger that we feel when somebody else wins and we don't, right? That's jealousy. Romans 12, 10. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Letting the other person win and cheering when they do. Good for you, you won. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Or don't only think of your own good. Think of other Christians and what is best for them. Think of what is doing what is best for my spouse, even if it means that I don't win. Matthew 20, 26 and 27, Jesus is like the kings and, and, and the leaders of the world lord it over them, but it should be different among you. It, it should be different among you followers of Christ. Whoever wants to be a leader must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must become the slave of all. 
Love doesn't demand its own way. This idea is sprinkled all over this Bible. And if I can't even do that with my spouse, then how in the world, if I can't be that kind of person that I'm supposed to be, that one person with my spouse, the person that I love more than any other person on human earth except Jesus, how on earth am I going to practice that with other people? Love doesn't demand its own way. You got a pen or a pencil handy? We're going to get specific right now. I don't know if you want to pause the video when you get all nine of them. Here's nine ways to consider your spouse better than yourself. And I'm going to say she because I'm a guy and Elaine's a girl, but you women listening to this, it works if you put he and treat it as your husband as well. Number one, I will not assume that my wife has evil motives just because I do. (laughs) Just because my motives aren't pure. I will not assume that hers are not pure. I will give her the benefit of the doubt. I will trust in her love for me. Number two, I will look for her most virtuous qualities, not her worst ones. And I will ask her to help me practice that quality in my own life, in my own approach to being her spouse. Number three, I will not assume that my time, my money, my energy, my thoughts, my opinions, you fill in the blank, are more important or more valuable than hers. I will seek her thoughts and I will allow her wisdom to shape mine. Number four, when I make a decision, I'll include her. I'll I'll consider how my decisions affect her and I won't just think of my own interests. In fact, we make decisions together wherever and whenever it's possible. Number five, I will be alert to her needs. I will look for ways that I can help her. I will become her servant so that she can win. I will be alert to her needs. Number six, I will commend her for her godly qualities. I will develop my love for her, my admiration for her by commending her for those qualities that she already has that are biblically worthy of praise. I will focus on the positive in her more than I currently do. Number seven, I will guard my heart from that pattern of critical evaluation of her, that judgmental attitude, those accusatory thoughts. I will ruthlessly eliminate from my heart any thought that judges her. Number eight, I will pray for her. You might want to underline that one. I will pray for her. I will not pray about her. God, the woman you gave me. I will pray for her. The only time that I will put her down is when I put her down on my prayer list. I will pray for her. And number nine, I will remind myself continually that she is a gift from God. I will remember that God often has given, God has given me everything that I need for life and godliness, and that includes her. That God only gives good things, and that includes her. That God has blessed me with an incredible spouse, And I am lucky to have her. My spouse is a gift from God. Nine things. Pick one. 
Try putting them into practice. Long quote here to end our sermon, but this is marriage psychologist, Dr. Kelly Flanagan, and and here's what he says. He writes this, you can be right or you can be married. I can't remember who told me that, but I remember they were only half joking. The other half, the serious half, is extremely important, and here's why. Many therapists are simply not crazy about doing marital therapy. It's complicated and messy, and it often feels out of control. In the worst-case scenario, the therapist finds himself with front-row seats to a regular scheduled prize fight. But I happen to love marriage therapy. Why? Maybe I enjoy the work because I keep one simple principle in mind. If a marriage is going to work, It needs to become a contest to see which spouse is going to lose the most. And it needs to be a race that goes down to the wire. A race for the silver medal. He goes on to say, when it comes to winning and losing, I think there are three kinds of marriages. In the first kind of marriage, both spouses are competing with each other to win and it feels like a duel to the death. Husbands and wives are armed with this vast arsenal of weapons ranging from fists to words to silence to the kids to withheld sex. These are the marriages that destroy. Spouses destroy each other and in the process they destroy their family and their children. In fact, the destruction is so complete that some research now is telling us that it's actually better for children to have divorced parents than constantly warring parents. These marriages account for most of the 50% of marriages that fail. The second kind of marriage is ripe with winning and losing, but the roles are set And the loser is always the same spouse. These are the truly abusive marriages, the one in which one spouse dominates and the other submits. And in the process of this, both husband and wife are stripped of their dignity. These are the marriages of addicts and enablers, tyrants and slaves, and these may be the saddest marriages of all. By the way, if you are in a physically abusive relationship, a physically abusive marriage, get help. Get out and get help. If you need to come talk to me about that, come talk to me, but but get some help. That's just not what God has planned for a marriage. There's a third kind of marriage, Dr. Flanagan writes. The third kind of marriage isn't perfect, (laughs) not even close, But a decision has been made. And two people have decided to love each other to the limit and to sacrifice the most important thing of all, themselves. In these marriages, losing becomes a way of life, a competition to see who can listen to, care for, serve, forgive, and accept the other person the most. The marriage becomes a competition to see who can change in ways that are most healing to the other person, to see who can give of themselves in ways that most increase the dignity and the strength of the other person. These marriages are what form people who can be small and humble and merciful and loving and peaceful, end quote. These marriages are revolutionary. I hope you're building one. Love does not demand its own way. 
Maybe marriage, when it's being lived out by two losers in a loving culture of mutual surrender, maybe that's just the kind of training ground that all of us need in order to get through the rest of this crazy life in a world that wants to chew us up and spit us out, in a world where only winners count, in a world where everyone is shouting, maybe our marriages become quiet places of refuge and victory. Maybe they're the place that we discover that we win by losing. Maybe our marriages become such miraculous places where God shapes us in a way that we can see through the myth of first place, where winning loses its glamour, where we can choose people over competition. Maybe the silver medal is the best medal of all in a marriage. And maybe if I learned that lesson myself just a little better this week, maybe I would sleep a little easier at night. Maybe I would, maybe I would be able to look her in the eyes again. Maybe I would be better at forgiving and forgetting. Maybe I wouldn't hold things against her. Maybe I would be better at applauding the things that she does and by extension applauding all the people around me. Love does not demand its own way. Jesus, this is not my love. It's yours. Would you build that in my marriage? Would you build that love in me this week? After they had finished supper, Jesus went with his disciples out to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and I pray. He took Peter and he took the two sons of Zebedee along with him. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground. And Jesus prayed this. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Love does not demand its own way. He didn't want to die. The thought of it was breaking him apart. Love does not demand its own way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. Heavenly Father, would you fill us with this love? Father, would you show us what it looks like to bring this love into our lives? Uh, Love that completely lays itself down for other people, Lord. True love is love that would lay its life down for a friend. Lord, whether we've been married a long time or just got married or whether we're not in a marriage relationship yet, fill us with love. That does not demand its own way.
Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance, Lord, to be close with you, to open your word, to be challenged by the truth. And now, Lord, as we go from this service into the rest of our week, make that our mission. Lord, spur us on, push us, encourage us. Encourage us boys to love our girls the best way that we can, to love our friends the best way that we can, the people we work with, Lord. Help us not to demand our own way. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.